Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, bakhair, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahnaz Haqqani. Today, we speak with co-authors Karen Bauer and Firas Hamza about their book, An Anthology of Quranic Commentaries, Volume 2 on Women, published in 2021 with Oxford University Press. It's a collection of historical and contemporary commentaries on the Qur'an with the specific theme of women. It covers five issues, human creation and the idea of a single soul, marital roles, specifically Qur'anic verse 434 and women's status in a marriage, Mary, mother of Jesus, women's legal testimony, and Qur'anic ideas of modesty. A chapter is devoted to each of these topics, comprising classical, medieval, modern, and contemporary interpretations of these topics. All chapters include various Muslim perspectives, such as Sunni, Twelver Shia, Ismaili, Ibadi, and Sufi. With the exception of the chapter on Mary, each chapter also includes interviews with contemporary scholars, namely Amina Wadud, Saadiya Sheikh, Fariba Al-Aswand, Yusuf Sanai, and Nasir Qurbaniya. The various and competing perspectives explored in this volume highlights the diversity and plurality of the Islamic exegetical tradition of tafsir, portraying commentaries as a very human and engaging endeavor. These commentaries are always in conversation with cultural and political milieu of the commentator's time and place, but they also deeply honor the commentaries of past generations as a way to demonstrate authority and knowledge of the historical essentially male-dominated tradition. The book also includes an important chapter, a prolegomenon on the Qur'anic lexicon on women, which offers a chronological sequence of women in the Qur'an and which traces the development of the Qur'an's worldview from the earliest Meccan revelations through the later Medinan period. So, for instance, in the early Meccan verses, women are addressed rather implicitly and largely as a part of an anti-pagan polemic, But by the later Medinan verses, women have emerged as active, pious, and social subjects. Both the book as a whole and each chapter individually can be assigned in various college, graduate, and undergraduate courses, such as in religious studies, women's and gender studies, religion and women courses, courses on tafsir, courses on scripture, and the book would be of much relevance and interest to those looking to better understand the evolution and development of conceptions of women's rights and roles, in the Islamic tradition specifically, but in religious traditions more generally. In this very engaging and enriching conversation with Karen Bauer and Firas Hamza, and one of my favorites, we discuss many of these issues and all of the chapters. We talk extensively about Quranic verse 434 on marital roles and responsibilities, about what it means to read the Quran literally and is it even possible not to, about tradition and tafsir and the limits of both, and about lived reality and religious authority. The interview was originally done in video format, so listeners who prefer the video conversation are welcome to watch it on my YouTube channel, which is called What the Patriarchy. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, Karen and Kiras. Thank you guys so much for joining me today to talk about this amazing book and anthology of Quranic commentaries. It's volume two on women. I'm so happy, as I was telling you guys, that I got to read this book. I have notes all over it. I have <laughs> WTFs written on the margins and like LOLs <laughs> everywhere. It's such a, it's, it's a fun read. It's also just really frustrating at times. I mean, obviously very, very necessary. So thank you both for coming and talking to me about it today. 
Well, thank you so much, Shahnaz, for inviting us to this podcast. We're really honored to speak to you about our book. Absolutely. So we'll begin with intros. We like to ask our, our um, authors to tell us about who they are and the, what their intellectual journey has been like. And then I'll, we'll get to the content of the book. Thank you, Shahnaz. Uh, my name is Firas Hamza. I, uh, I did uh, my doctoral studies in early Islamic history, really early, um, on sectarian theology and notions of temporary hellfire and temporary punishment, a kind of purgatory in Islamic theology and how the different early communities understood that. Um, that was at Oxford. I then uh, became affiliated with the Institute for Ismaili Studies in London. Um, I was there for, for many years as a research associate and that's actually how I met Karen. But I met her just as I was leaving. I now live in Dubai, I've lived in Dubai um, since 2008. And I do something very different here. I, I look after a, um, a school of humanities and social sciences. So I, I do much more of a dean's job, a kind of administrative job that uh, looks after the humanities. But that's partly because of my interest and, and, um, and eagerness to promote humanities everywhere, because I think that's the key uh, <clears throat> to most problems. So, um, so I now live in Dubai. I've been here uh, 14 years, but I maintain my relationships, uh, intellectual, and personal with colleagues from the Institute uh, of Ismaili Studies. And that's where Karen and I met actually all those years ago. But then we suddenly somehow this converged um, intellectually on the topic of women and we decided to work together. And that's where we are now. We've since produced the anthology and currently working on a second book on women in the Quran, women household as we call it, households in the Quran. Um, and that's where we are right now. So. And my name is Karen Bauer. Um, I did my PhD uh, at Princeton with Patricia Crona and Michael Cook. So I had an old fashioned Orientalist training. Hmm. Um, and yet I was always really interested in questions and topics that would also pertain to, to people's lived experience today. And so although I trained as a medievalist, um, I, was, I was interested in the genre of Quranic commentaries because I thought that, well, the Quran um, is relevant to everybody today, all Muslims today. And so why not look at this commentarial tradition that, could, that can stretch through time? And so as I looked closer at that commentarial tradition, I actually realized how specialized it was. And I became very disillusioned with the commentarial tradition, to be totally honest. I wrote a, I wrote a monograph about it, um, gender hierarchy in the Quran, medieval interpretations, modern responses, and that's about this, about some of this material um, and, and how and why it changes through time. And, um, and then um, the Institute asked me to do this, this anthology. And it was just great that uh, Firas decided to join me on it because it was a real meeting of the minds um, that I think we, we didn't quite expect it to work out that way. Uh, with um, his longstanding interest in um, translation and Quranic commentaries and my longstanding interest in women and gender. And, and it just it just all came together um, in this in a great way. Um, and as Firas mentioned, it it's led to further interest in working together and a, a whole nother book, which we hope will be published in 2023. But yeah. And so that's uh, that's, I guess, what you would say my intellectual tradition uh, trajectory on this towards this volume and a little bit beyond it. And separately, I've also gotten very into the study of emotions in Islamic history, 
as well. So I, I think we, uh, we you know, we, bro we both bring um, uh, different, uh, different interests from our particular kind of trajectories and, uh, but they, but they, they complement each other so well. I mean, I, so I elided a little bit my own intellectual journey and, and Karen is kind enough to remind me that I was interested in texts because I, I came from a literature background. I mean, my undergraduate was nothing to do with Islamic studies. It was in modern languages. I did, uh, you know, modern European languages. Um, and I loved literature so much. And I loved texts. And I, so I, that honed in me a sort of sense of, you know, um, what, how do we interact with texts and how, do, how can texts transform us? I mean, many years later, I would discover that there was a whole tradition of continental philosophy that had been thinking about that for a long time. But uh, but then I at the institute I I became involved with some as Karen said a couple of translation projects um, and there were translations of commentaries and that was you know it was an almost an impossible task but I don't know how I I was sucked into it and I ended up learning a lot about how the Arabic language works and it was a key to kind of unlocking that whole world of Arabic medieval Arabic um, but then it was also a key to unlocking how the Quran was viewed by those medieval uh, exegetes. So it was kind of training before I knew it for what would be really useful later on, which is, you know, when you when we dive straight into the Quran and we try to disentangle the Quran from the commentarial tradition, from the commentary, uh, the you know, the tradition of commenting on the Quran is, is we, we try to separate the two because in, in, the, in the kind of intellectual imaginary and the kind of tradition of Islam, both are so intertwined that, you know, people, people think, well, they just naturally go together. But actually, you know, you the more that you study tafsir and then separately, the more that you read the Quran, and I mean read it in the sense that Karen was saying about um, really trusting that a text has something to say and just listening to it, you see that there is actually uh, quite a divide. It's a superstructure um, that lies above that. So my interest in text and her interest in uh, in emotions and the study of gender, I think, all came together nicely for this project. Yeah, I had a background in literature too, as a matter of fact. But anyway, and art, and art, and art, and art. Yeah. yeah, all those all those things help, of course. All those things help, indeed. Yeah. So coming to this book, I think that that all that that all came together very nicely. And this book is was was a part of the reason that I think we we noticed that there that there is really an actual divergence between Quran and interpretation. How did you guys decide what uh, who to include in here? You know, what that process of compiling all of this research and this data was like? So um, this, this, of course, is volume two of the series called the Anthology of Quranic Commentaries. So we had a precursor. So volume one actually gave a lot of the kind of for structure and the organizational method that we use in two, at least in principle. A volume, a volume one, I also worked on, and um, actually um, credit must be given to our colleague, uh, Sajjad Rizvi, who, who was my co-editor in that volume um, for having conceptualized the whole kind of uh, project. But, I, but actually, to a large extent, what we tried to do in, so volume two was a kind of copy of volume one in terms of how we organized uh, at least the medieval material, the primary material, uh, the Quran and the tafsir. But what we tried to do in, in volume two was just uh, ch change a little bit the, the list of commentators to kind of use commentators who we didn't use. I mean, there's some that you cannot avoid, like the earliest commentary is always going to be something like that of Muqat al-Bin Suleyman. 
Tabari will always give you the start of the classical period. So it's a kind of innovative tafsir. Certain tafsirs you just can't avoid having because they really give you kind of um, waymarks and milestones in the history of tafsir. So you can actually benchmark off them what's going on. But in, in the in-betweens, I mean, we had some choice, I think. Um, we tried to, of course, cover all of the um, <clears throat> schools of thought within Islam, the denominations, if we can call them that. So from the Sunni and the Shia, and the subdivisions, of course, therein. So the Ismailis and the uh, Ethnasharis and so on. Um, you also try to give a sense of theological, um, so Kalam-based uh, uh, diversity, because it's not that also is weaves in at some point to both Sunni and Shia commentaries. Um, and I think the the greatest contribute. I think the the biggest innovation from Volume One was the modern material because that was based a lot on Karen's contacts and her um, interviews. Actually, some of them done uh, many years before. Yeah, we had two innovations though. Don't forget that we also had the innovation of including a chapter on the Quran itself. Um, yeah. And and so I think that those innovations were both necessary. Uh, in the first place, because because the, the tafsir tradition is um, is a very scholastic tradition all all through the centuries when it uh, when it occurs this this in, uh, commentarial tradition there the authors are always looking to show certain things they're always looking to prove their credentials in certain ways they're always looking to explain things with certain um, uh, methods. And although the, those change pretty radically in the modern period, and you do get um, monovalent interpretations, it means you get you get one interpretation at a time. Whereas in the in the medieval period, you often got many conflicting interpretations side by side. In the modern modern works, you usually get one. Um, but still, um, through that through the whole genre with all of its diversity, you find not much diversity about certain things. <laughs> and when you look at something like women, you will really notice the lack of diversity as well as the diversity, right? And so in order to rectify that, um, really bringing in these interviews where it becomes more like a living tradition, more like you can talk about how people are living it or what they're really feeling and thinking about it, or the methods that they're taking. I was really interested to see how they, how how today's scholars would navigate the medieval tradition, and also how how they deal with things that are difficult today, right? How they deal with the the, the sorts of verses that are difficult to deal with um, from today's perspective, and might even have been difficult in the medieval period. And then the chapter on the Quran that we also added. Uh, that was nothing like that was in volume one. It was equally necessary. Um, and even our introduction to the book, it, it included more sections and was lengthier than the one from volume one. And all of that is just to situate why, um, how, how the tafsir tradition becomes its own thing. It's separate from the Quran. And it's also kind of separate in some sense it's, it's intertwined with, but also separate in a sense from how people are living their lives today. It depends on the, the interpreter, how much they want to incorporate those kind of medieval views into what they're, into how they're living today. Um, and the, the Quran chapter um, is what became then a book that we've now written together. And that's just a really um, brief uh, excursus on how terminology relating to women develops through time in the Quran as we, we, we explored this way that 
that the believing women may, uh, gain prominence through time in, in the Quran so that in the earliest revealed surahs, they're almost not there. And then by the latest surahs, they're really clearly a part of the believing community and important, a key part of the believing community. I, I'm always interested in, in how in people, in scholars' experiences, in researchers' experiences working with or interviewing, you know, living people. How, what was that process like, you know, finding these people and then having these conversations with them that clearly you disagree with? I think in one of my, one of my favorite um, scenes, you have Karen's research assistant. And so she says, Karen disagrees with this. It's like an interview, I think, on a woman's testimony with Fariba al-Asband in, in Iran. So Fariba says, what, what, what part does she disagree with? And then your assistant says, I'm, I can just tell from her face she disagrees. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the interviews in Iran, um, there, uh, I had this contact with Mufid University, who who supported my trip. They sponsored my trip. They were absolutely amazing, and um, I'm still in contact with Fariba Alasfand and my research assistant Fatima Muslimi through WhatsApp and via email. Um, and uh, Dr. Alasvand, she actually agreed to update her interview a little bit for this for this volume. Not hugely because we didn't have the time. Um, I only, I contacted her a little bit late in the day because it wasn't clear until after the peer reviews that we'd actually be able to include those interviews. And so, um, and, and so when we got a positive response from the peer reviewers, then we, we got the green light to go ahead. And but then it was all a little bit rushed. So um, she said that she would have she would have phrased things in a more streamlined way these days. But I don't think that her basic opinion has changed of, of the things that she was expressing. It, it was a really interesting process because in some cases you find that like in her case that you I really I couldn't respect her more. She's really an amazing person, but I also really profoundly disagreed with what she was saying. But I think that the respect really throw, showed through, um, or, or I was able to express that. Um, there were other instances where I honestly couldn't believe my ears, like what what was what was happening, and I and I couldn't believe I was in that situation. And it is really hard in those cases to know exactly how to respond. I think I just tried to stick to the textual tradition. Um, but um, but at the same time, I do think that my astonishment sometimes does show through in the interviews and my, my kind of outrage, the outrage shows. Um, and then our experience together, then we decided as well to interview some modern um, feminists who work in English, right? Which I hadn't included in my monograph, um, because uh, uh, because I was I was exploring the textual tradition as it was uh, handed down in specific contexts, right? And I couldn't do all the contexts, and I didn't. I felt like the um, the for the monograph it wasn't appropriate to include these English language sources, but for this book, for our anthology, we decided to interview Saadia Sheikh and Amina Wadud, and that was again really interesting because I think that. Um, I mean, I don't know if Firas wants to talk about that that experience. I mean, I think that we found points of commonality and points where we where um, where we all converged, and then I think that there were equally points where where sometimes um, Firas and I would have taken a different um, stance, but but it wasn't appropriate in this book to kind of outline that stance, if you know what I mean. It was it was our chance to interview them. What do you think, Firas? Yeah, I, uh, that experience was interesting for me, of course, because I come from outside of the feminist debate um, 
in, in or interest in that in those issues and you know I, it's not an area of expertise at all by far um, but what I what I now find very interesting is that we I'm not sure that we have seen the, the full effect or what does it look like for women to read the Quran and find it uh, emancipatory through all of its you know, through the entire text, the entire message, and not have to engage in, uh, and I'll call, qualify this because I don't want to be misread, but not to have to engage in one of one or two methods, which is to disregard the tafsir tradition entirely, or to disregard the Quranic verses, those that 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 are might be thought of as problematic. I mean, either way, I think so. In other words. What does it take to understand the Quran in its context in 7th century Mecca in order to understand the values that are underpinned by that story told in the Quran about 7th century Mecca? And I find that sometimes uh, I think people, are, you know, scholars take, feminist scholars perhaps, um, take personal shortcuts. I mean, personally chosen shortcuts or or bypass some of the problematic aspects of it. And I, and I think... You know, I don't know if there are enough voices that um, have the kind of authority to be able to say, well, actually, I, you know, as a woman, I find that the Quran is, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing demeaning uh, to women about it. And there's nothing there that's, that goes against my, you know, my idea of moral transformation and growth and social agency. There's nothing there to mitigate that or to limit it in any way. Um what we do, what I've seen from the reactions I could see from both um, the scholars that we interviewed that Karen mentioned was a way to write out parts of the Quran, for example, because they were uncomfortable and they, they could, there's no way that there could be spirituality in that text and that text have those verses. Those, that's just an incompatibility. You cannot have spirituality as we understand it in the modern day and then there'd be verses like those verses in the Quran, for example, you know, 434 and What's the other one from Al Maida for the thief and the? Yeah, yeah. I forgot the reference about cutting off the hands and, and you know all of those. It just, but I just feel that that's there's something disingenuous about that. Um, even if they're troubling or difficult verses, I think maybe it speaks more to our inability to deal with difficult things in modernity. We don't have an appetite for understanding what difficulty means. Um, so that's interesting as a kind of different conversation. But what I learned from those interviews is that we still haven't, I still cannot see an example of, uh, a, a, you know, a kind of position that truly embraces the Quran in all of its aspect uh, and comes out emancipatory at the other end, as opposed to comes out by, by deciding to cut out bits of the Quran um, or to or to become patriarchal, actually, to become pro-patriarchal, which is the other tendency, is that they reinforce the male hegemony of of tafsir. I mean, you've you've seen. You've, I mean, there's no shortage of women scholars, uh, as you know, as are scholars as well, or women, well, very well known, who actually you know just uh, bolster the traditional, uh, you know, the traditional interpretation, which is which was always that of the males. I mean, the, the scholastic tradition was as, you know, as we all, Karen and I always say, it was, you know, entirely scholastic, entirely male tradition writing. And as in any scholastic tradition, just like you you and I, all three of us here, we write for each other. So those males wrote for each other. I mean, I mean, it was an ex exercise in 
in showing off to one another or kind of seeking the views of one another indirectly through scholarship. But for that very reason, there was no presence of, of women's issue or of, I mean, nobody could conceive of why they would have to kind of uh, give the time of day to a woman's uh, you know, you know, issue that that is that is the only thing now. Actually, now it's the other. It's the other way around. So, yeah, it was really an interesting journey for me because at first I really thought that the tafsir tradition represented what the Quran said. Like I didn't really think when I first. I mean, years and years ago when I started this project, like like in its first iterations when I was a graduate student, I think I really thought that 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 the tafsir tradition kind of represented the range of views. And then I saw the tafsir tradition as representing a range of views. And then I saw the tafsir tradition as representing basically a view with certain slight deviations and slight nuances from it. And, and I, I began to see that there might be really other ways of looking at things. And what I think about um, was really fascinating, yeah, about the, about the, interviews of people maybe who um, who I think are intellectually more on our page in terms of being emancipatory themselves is exactly what Firaz said is that it seems that for many people an emancipatory reading is a reading in which certain parts of the Quran have to be written out or become meaningless right or have to and that's true as well of um, like say Fasla Rahman the the idea that that there are bits that that are laws that are just stuck in one time and then there are bits that are timeless but um and i think that that's that that's a that that's a dynamic that's really really interesting in that um for for people who look at it as a historical text as we do you know and seek to put it in in its historical context but um and as the and as the exegetes did in fact as well they were of course looking to put it in its historical context but then everybody's also seeking to see, like, wants to see, well, what, what does that actually mean? What does it, what, what is the greater import there of that? And, and I think that as Firas said, it was, it was interesting because in the interviews, I think that that also was take, done at a time when we were starting to take our own readings. And, then, and so it was, it was an interesting process for us. I mean, it was a great honor as well that, to interview um, such great scholars and to yes. also find the points of, to also find the points of similarity, like I, I recall that there's that idea of barbed wire moments in the Quran that we were talking about with Sadia, where there are these moments that might test you, like that are there just specifically in order to test you to see if to see if you're going to do the, the thing that you could do, but that would be worse for you, or if you're just going to take a higher ground there, you know. And that was that was a really interesting conversation for me to be a part of because both Firas and Sadia had thought about that as Muslims. And it was really um uh, it, it was it was a really nice conversation to hear happening, actually. Yeah. What what might it mean if we didn't discount all those verses, but if we saw them in a in a way that saw them as a test or a part of a test. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So thinking about that the conversations in which this idea of you know saying no to a certain part of the text, um, I so Amina Madud is famous for 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 suppose for saying no to, but she doesn't say no to the text though. I think it's really important. She's very careful. I think when she says, "I'm saying no to a literal reading of the text," or "I'm saying no to a violent interpretation of the text," and I think that that I, I find that really important. In that you know I I know the text is there. 
this is still from God. So something is happening here. But as far as there are multiple possibilities of this text, I'm going to say no to the violent ones. 434 is one of the most difficult verses for me also. And I it, and I, I also found that discussion interesting where, where Zadia Sheikh also says, this is a test. God is testing us and there is a violent way of reading it and there's a nonviolent way of reading it. And what are our ethics and what results are we going to come up with? And Well, you know, one of the things that's ironic is that uh, I think history here is always um, misappropriate, mis- mis- uh, misused, I think. Um, so one of the ways to be historical is, of course, to say that the Quran, you know, is all seventh century. And so you just put it back there in seventh century and you forget about it. I mean, that's in a sense, that's what most uh, academics do in, in Islamic studies who are, you know, come from a kind of Orientalist um, pedigree, I suppose. In a sense, they're just saying it's all seventh century and you can understand it either by reducing it to seventh century Arabia or Judeo-Christian late antique uh, precursors. The other way to do it is to to do history and say, well, let's be true to that history and let's relive it. And that's the other extreme, which is to actually enact the text as it is. And so that's a, that, that does violence to history as well. So in a, in a sense, one is a redundant approach and one does violence to the approach. And I mean, I always think that we're, <clears throat> isn't it ironic that the Quran says that, um, has that, you know, that violent moment in that verse, but it's a seventh century text where we have violence all around us from just a few decades ago towards women. I mean, in Western countries, the ones that, Today. You know, just, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, no, no, I mean, you know, without any kind of legal uh, penalization, I mean, actual laws that say you cannot beat up your wife, you can, you know, rape is this. And so I only till very recently. So I, I think when you forget about all of that, you forget that actually you have a seventh century problem, not a 21st century necessarily. But I my 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 problem with that is that if you don't read the text literally, you won't understand the historical context. And if you don't understand the historical context, you won't be able to universalize the, the spiritual message. So you have to read the text literally in order to understand it literally, because literally that's what was going on in the seventh century. So history requires a literal reading, and there's nothing wrong with a literal reading. I mean, who doesn't lead who doesn't read literally? I mean, are you telling me that some people skip lines in a novel or a page, or or begin, insert a metaphor when they, be, they meet a you know when they you meet know, a? For uh, us, as, as a matter of fact, I actually skip huge chunks. You skip <laughs> when, like the girl with You're, the dragon tattoo that uh, yeah. the right scene. I skip that whole bit. And anyway, yeah. never mind. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. I mean that we do, we we when we when we read literally because that's I mean I'm going back to your point about I mean we do it's. Choosing not to read it literally because that would suggest that she those words on the in the verse number thirty four are not to be read as they stand on the text. But then that I mean, once you start doing that to the to all of the, the aspect of the Quran that Karen was mentioning, you don't understand. Then you don't understand the relation it it has to the overall message of the Quran and the and the grounded the relations between uh, individuals in that community in 7th century Mecca. And if you don't do that, you won't understand what it meant to say that in 7th century Mecca, what the purpose of that is, for you then to be able to uh, you know, apply it to, um, uh, to our modern context, you see. Right, apply it not, not literally, if you're asking. Uh, uh, 
but apply apply the <laughs> what do you mean? No, no, I said I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't make a mistake. I said that you the universalizing aspect of the spiritual yeah. experiencing, and that and that the spiritual. This, by the way, this when I say spiritual, I don't. We don't want to be understood as something wishy washy, and everybody does their own thing. No, no, spirituality is about the actual others and doing things, behaving in a certain way towards others. That's the only way that you grow spiritually. So it involves work, involves um, a lot of trouble for the self because everybody's uh, you know most individuals are self-obsessed um, uh, so you know it's a lot of hard work uh, but how are we to translate that uh, experience from the 7th century to the 21st century unless we read literally and unless we understand the history behind it so that's you know I think for me important. I, I think I think because it's from God right and because it has impacts on you know, practical consequences for, in this case, specifically women, wives, I think that the, 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 the struggle that people like Aminawadud and everyone else or so many people are having is, yeah, the laws are, the human laws are different. When human laws make, you know, when they enslave people, when they support enslaving people, when they support marital rape, but then there's God. And this is a text that is, yes, it's from the seventh century, but it's, you know, it is, for all times. I mean, in, in Pakistan, you, just, just a few years ago, I think it was 2015, 2016, the province of Punjab in Pakistan decided to, um, to, to illegalize domestic violence, specifically violence against wives and women. And the protests, there were women and men in the streets saying, absolutely no, because God has allowed men to hit their wives and you cannot, the law cannot take that right away from us. I think because it has such practical consequences, the, this, this discussion for so many folks is very, it, it, it poses a lot of serious struggles. Well, I think that that's, it, it's really interesting because that's where the tafsir tradition has really taken over. The point is, is that in the text, it's really obvious once you read the whole of Surah Tanisa, that this is all about limiting men's rights and that men might have had an unlimited right at one time. But in that verse, for instance, they, men who are maybe used to like really transgressing are told, no, 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 you cannot do that. Like th there have to be these steps. You, you cannot do it if she's, if she's putting, pulling her end of the bargain or whatever. And, you know, taken into the 21st century or even taken beyond that particular milieu, it's very obvious that the limiting, that the, the limiting factor was in play, just like, like say in, in the, in the issues of slavery or whatever, the limiting factor was in play. And therefore the kind of moral high ground is not to do that, right? You know, it's just, it's just really, really clear, right? That that's, that that's even the case in the seventh century, the moral high ground was not to do it, right? That it, because, because all of those verses that are around that also have to do with, with kind of men's, um, uh, men not transgressing uh, the the rights of the vulnerable people right that are in their care because they are they are uh in these households and they're patriarchs in the households and there are lots of people that they're having to look after and they, they they're liable to transgress those rights right and and so are they liable to transgress the rights of those people and so you know i but here's where you see that the tafsir tradition could easily easily have taken that view it could so easily any one of those guys in the early period could have just said well looking at the prophet's example of he never hit his wives looking at the way that the verse is and they all admit that it's that it's a three-step solution and that you're not allowed to transgress 
But then when you look at how they translate it into fic, they say, but really a husband has the right to beat his wife and not be punished unless he kills her, right? This is obviously not what's going on in the Quran at all, right? But it's that kind of, um, whereas the Quranic sense is very much a limiting sense, right, of, the, of that. Like, if you look at laws in the Quran as being either limiting, like putting in a limit, like you should never go beyond that, or if you look at them as um, prescriptive, like you should pray, right? So this verse is obviously a limiting verse. It's saying, look, you, you might do this thing, but don't, don't really do it. Don't, don't do it beyond these bounds. Don't really, you know, go too far with this, right? And whereas, you know, the prayer verses are, and the charitable giving verses, they would be like, do more and more and more of that, right? You know, and so I think that that's also, when, when we're reading it from a modern perspective, we're thinking, oh, that, that, that what it says is somehow a law. And, and that's what Piras was saying about actually the more we understand of the patriarchal society in which it, it is from, that the more we try to actually read it for what it was saying at the time, then we can understand the moral precepts behind that, right? So it's only then that we can notice that actually, if we take all these verses seriously, then we can see that that the this whole series of verses is is limiting men's rights in a way that seems you know utterly um, incongruous to us today. Because of course, men don't have those rights in in the, in the societies in which we live. Thankfully, you know, right? Like they don't have the right to be. You know, so anytime we see it, all we see is like, oh, it must be granting them a right, and not seeing it from the other side, which is it must be limiting their rights. And whereas the things that it's promoting are other sets of behaviors, right? So I think that that there's a way of reading it in a historical context that does answer those questions, but it's that is directly the influence of the tafsir and fiqh tradition. And that is why it's so important to understand who was writing these, these works of tafsir and the kinds of patriarchal milieu that they were being written in, because if, if it's only this small elite group of scholarly men writing these texts for other small elite group of smaller scholarly men, like they're only writing for each other, they're only responding to each other, they're trying to keep their own power. They don't wanna give any power to women, they wanna keep women down, right? I mean, because that is how power works. And so to see that, 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 that it's those kind of expansivist interpretations that are actually a misreading of the moral worldview that's put forth in the text itself. And it's those sorts of interpretations that are now being taken as though they were the text itself, right? As though that is what the text says. That's, that's why it's really important to, I think, to look at like the, the changes that we document in these and the, the sorts of outrageous things that the exegetes say in the medieval period, like that, like that a man could beat his wife and, and only get punished if she dies. I mean, where is that in the text of the court? I mean, that's not, that's really like, that's really outrageous. 
one of the things that makes 434 so complicated also is the word shoes, right? What does it mean to rise up against a husband? When the same word shoes appears in 4128, it doesn't mean the same thing anymore. It doesn't mean to when a, when a husband rises up against his wife or... Yeah, I think in both cases, it's kind of like this turning away from your duties, right? Like going outside of the bounds of your kind of duties, right? And And so... Because the, because the duties, the everyday, involves um, things which are, you know, of just all sorts. I mean, from the mundane things that we do every day within the context of a family unit are considered part of that sacred uh, project. I mean, all the little things that you do, when we do in the modern day, I don't know what we do now, I, I, we clean and cook and do everything else for others within the household unit. All of that is part of, uh, you know, at its outer limit is sexual transgression, of course. I mean, because all of that ruptures the, the, the fabric, that kind of sacred fabric, which we, within which the family unit cultivates individual morality. And so both cases of those issues, and they're asymmetric precisely because we're seven, we're in the seventh century, and the and the men have that kind of um, you know social higher ground. Um, the 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 problem is, of course, that twenty twenty first century men think that they're seventh century men, so they of course they'd be upset about the laws that you were talking about, uh, Shernaz, because that, that those laws you know um, deprive them of that uh, of that sort of kind of you know social power and the privileges that they thought they had. But they you know if only they knew they were being so if they realize actually that they weren't they they no longer have to be seventh century men they'd be grateful for those laws because there would be no more pressure to to be you know to kind of act in macho ways supposedly yeah. and and speaking of the you know the changes that you documented here and again one of the most powerful things here right like here's how here's a very here's very clear evidence that meanings of the quran are changing um and we see is it rashid rida i think he's the first one to say no the quran would not allow violence against women uh, even my own teacher misunderstood this or exactly and what's so interesting is that then he cites hadiths he cites hadiths that say but would you uh, would you hit somebody what what is it what is the exact one would you hit um would you hit your slave and then and then make love in the morning and then make love to her in the evening yeah. or something you know would you and and like and so that that obviously we're always around those always those the thing is is that when I looked up the hadiths what I was really surprised by is that actually they're also in the in the sahih collections it's not like it's not like those hadiths were not around at the time when the exegetes were writing their works of tafsir those hadiths were still around and that's what's so fascinating to me is that actually Every time the exegetes are writing and the interpreters are writing that a man has this right over his wife, they are making a choice between those authentic hadiths and their own decision that, that actually those hadiths don't matter, you know, mm. like, and, and, you know, or this asbab and nizul that's not in any the, the asbab and nizul is not in one of the authenticated collections or anything. I mean, you know, and, and that's what's so fascinating to me is that is that they're they're constantly making a choice to enable men this huge leeway, and that has to do with their own position, trying to keep their own position of power. I mean, it. Must, oh, I, you know, I think I there is nothing. I think there's no there's no 
uh, greater indication of that, um, the, the, the lure of, of the enticing aspect of power is that the potential for violence is there. You just hold that potential. And so the potential that you could be violent towards somebody else without even having to do anything. I think that's what's so um, probably, you know, seductive uh, for those who, you know, you were referring to earlier, Shana. And then you have Mahri, uh, Mahrizi who says that the verse has been abrogated. Yeah, like, I was so shocked. I was, I was like, really? <laughs> like, just like slavery has been abrogated. So I know we're talking a lot about 434 in the chapter on marital roles, but you also talk about a whole bunch of other important issues. We've got the creation, the veil, we've got Mary, women's testimony. And so let's talk about some of those other ones. The, for the human creation one, it is fascinating to me that even though not all of the men, all of these scholars think that Adam is created first, they still have an incredibly misogynistic view of, of women. And to me, what is really, really striking also is that the, the meanings of the word, of, of the phrase from a single soul. I mean, I, you know, there are folks like, I think Shirazi says, um, oh, from a single uh, soul refers to the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, I think that, um, that the, that the human creation verses, those were the most interesting in some sense um, of where you can really, really see that, that sense in which, um, in which people's time, place, and personal assumptions or, or societal assumptions will affect what they're going to say about the Quran. They're, and it's exactly things like you were saying that, that you've got, you've got, um, uh, both Kashani's, uh, uh, you know, Mohsen Ofeid and Kashani himself, who said, um, who said, both of them in different ways were reading all kinds of things into that, you know, like Eve being created from the left side and the left side being the side of, you know, generation and corruption and the worldly side and then Adam's the spiritual side. And, you know, that's why women are, are, drawn to men and the earthly things and men are drawn to spiritual things. And I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? And then and then you had, yeah, the, the Ismaili, Fatima, the Ismaili interpreter, Al-Mu'ayyid Fidina Shirazi, where, where it was an entirely spiritual interpretation and all references to men and women in the Quran are really references to the spiritual teacher and the spiritual follower, right? And so men are, are uh, moon over women, men are in, in charge or men are maintainers or of women would mean actually that the teacher is in that relationship to the student. But of course he was Fatima, he wasn't antinomian. So he said, of course you have to obey this in the worldly realm too. Like wives still have to, you know, obey their husbands is what he says. But really there's a more, uh, there's a more salient spiritual sense. And that was really fascinating to me because also that one doesn't come from within the tafsir tradition. And it made me think, and also there's, there, we made some references to Ibn Arabi, and again, from outside of the tafsir tradition. And it shows you that also the way that the Quran is being interpreted, even by male interpreters, outside of that narrow textual genre, is, is actually already opening up some more possibilities that weren't in, that aren't even represented within that genre. And, um, and that was also interesting to me. But then, as you kind of mentioned earlier, there was the, the maybe the most fascinating shift on that was then to the modern conservatives who still said it was about Adam and Eve, but no longer said it said anything about inequality. There, there, there's no more inequality. Those, those hadiths are just, they don't pay any attention to them. And 
that was that was really fascinating. And then and then you got into the twelver she some some she interpreters would say that that um, your mind is actually your your own rational sense is actually also a guide that you can follow in interpreting the Quran. So it led into some interesting discussions of um, of uh, methods for interpreting the Quran. But even the conservatives were utterly against any suggestion that women would be less valuable than men as people, right? So there's this funny old way in which they're going kind of back to the Quranic message, which the which the whole interpretive tradition kind of sidelined because of the their, yeah. So um yeah, I don't know if Firas wanted to comment on a different one of the different verses, maybe the veiling verse. I don't know. Or it's do you quite, want to talk about Well, I mean, I think we can talk about the veil verse quickly because I think that's interesting. The veil, the so-called veiling verse, because it comes uh, it's interesting for several reasons, because it's one of probably two places in which there's reference to women doing some kind of veiling action or drawing upon themselves of some cover. Um, uh, the, for the first takeaway, I think, from that, the work that we did on that was the, the absolute unanimity that uh, women should never be in a state where they cover their face and hands because there was some understanding that they would obviously be needed to be recognized in public and going about doing their social affairs. So that's quite interesting for our modern dilemmas about giving rights to people who were the full niqab or the, or the burqa or the, the, you know, some kind of full face veil, which has become problematic, of course, in Western context. Um, but even in our own, um, like in cultural context, one wonders what the purpose of that is. But so there must be some deep-seated cultural notions under underneath that. Um, but certainly, the the for you know the probably one of the few moments where you can <laughs> applaud the medieval commentators for actually saying something meaningful or something supporting some kind of women's rights because they never do. Uh, is when they say, well, you know, the woman's face and hands should always be showing because we need to know who's talking, who's doing what. Muzawala, um, they, they talk about doing everyday stuff, you know, to, to be free to do everyday stuff and move around and presumably in and out of the house as well. So that was the first uh, uh, little, nice little surprise from the medieval commentaries. Um, the other one actually is, um, you know, I think just the extent to which uh, it's not really, one doesn't, emerge clear with what really should be i mean what, what there is no there's the idea of modesty that's where you emerge right that the idea of modesty is what you come out of from you know certainly from the reading chronic verses uh you know the the mufassirun are interested in what kind of veil and they give you different lists of things and where they should be and whether you should a woman should be covering up her forearms and you know uh, they, there's a discussion of what constitutes the zina, which is the key word in that verse, the zina, which is adornment, or what makes what what is the most beautiful thing about a person or something that's attractive about that person. And you know, um, they 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 have a kind of very they try to be clever about figuring out whether the zina is, you know, the actual parts of the woman or the places where she kind of draws attention to herself and, and so on. You never really come out of, with much, but but I think our reading for our later work has been important because we do come away with a sense of this is talking about an ethic of modesty, as we call it in our current work. So yeah, uh, and that's you know um, we can we can discuss that more. Yeah, I think that it was really interesting in the context of modesty 
um, the interview with Sadia Sheikh, where she said, um, where she actually came out and said that, well, in my context in South Africa, you're drawing more attention to yourself by covering yourself entirely than you are just by walking around in the normal way that everybody walks around without any, you know, with like, um, without even wearing a headscarf or whatever. She said, that's the thing that's, 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 that's where you're drawing people's eyes to you and where you're drawing people's attention to you. And it was a really interesting point in the context of, you know, what does it mean to, um, yeah, well, uh, what is that ethic of modesty that's being, yeah, what what does that even mean? Yeah. The one thing that I get out of that, that discussion also, I thought is very important is that there is, um, that modesty is defined by context and, um, <clears throat> Yeah, except that, uh, as I always say, uh, sorry, because I can't, it's a very facetious moment. What do you do in a, how do you, uh, how can you be modest in a nudist colony? You see that once you've solved, once you solve that one, you can then solve the other problems. <laughs> what is yeah. modesty? If, if there was a nation state in which nudism was just the standard, like every, how would you behave to be modest in that context? Would you go nude because everybody else is nude? I mean, you know, at the extreme, of course, it's always context specific, uh, I think. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the, the verses are not, you know, they're not that clear because th there's no there's no one situation, I think. Um, like you said, I, I think that the verses that they say, let them not show their adornment, it says, right? Except, except what is apparent. I mean, therein there's already a contradiction in a sense. So that I think the Quran is being very kind of ambiguous um, intentionally because it's so context specific I think that you know this was, modesty can work in, di in different ways in different contexts so yeah I agree with some of that but when you've resolved the nudist colony let me know well, well, well no to me it would be, it could be a question a discussion of okay why do we want to be modest why is modesty so important well that's important and, actually yeah and right and so once we once we establish that then I think we can say okay well in this nudist colony like, let, maybe you see, you're following my. It's a bad example to follow. What an example! I think that, but that, it's it's entirely heuristic. It's only for the purposes of illustrating the point that we're right. making here. About <laughs> I get that, um, and and also the text and like you said, the verse is very vague. It's very ambiguous. Um, and, and one of the veiling verses ends with and so that they're identified or recognized and not harmed, right? And. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's 3359. There's also something, there's the idea of the effeminate, uh, you know, let, you know, women covering everything in front of, you know, or being modest or whatever in front of their husbands, sorry, except in front of their husbands, uh, husbands, fathers and sons and so on. And then men who do not have sexual desires or desires for, for women, uh, which some tafsir traditions will, you know, say um, this refers to older men uh, or blind men or, and it's, well, or gay men, right? But they're not, they just didn't think of the possibility that, okay, some men might not be attracted to women. Mm. Again, like for me, one of the more fascinating things always is how do they know what they know? I'm, I want to know where they're getting their claims from, their arguments from. And the text, the Quranic text doesn't distinguish between enslaved women and free women. But a lot of the, the, the seers here will um, reference a hadith in which Omar beats a woman, an enslaved woman because she covered herself when she wasn't supposed to and covering is only for free women. I think you're right, Shahnaz. And, what, and what's fascinating about, you know, both the, this tradition that we've been discussing and then what you've been saying is the way that it intersects with um, notions of social class and privilege 
and um, self-respect, the, the respect, the social respect and the self-respect that goes along with that's taken for granted as a part of certain uh, of being a part of a certain social class or certain social group. And so it that it, this is never um, the, the extent to which this is explored in the Tafsir tradition is just that hadith, I think, if I'm not wrong, where yeah, where a, a slave woman wouldn't be allowed to cover because that would be putting herself above her station, right? You know, and um, and that that's very um, yeah. The this this whole idea of modesty, in some sense of it, as intertwined with both self-respect and respect for the group, right? Because when it says that they should draw their cloaks around themselves, that they might be recognized. So it's that they might be recognized as Muslim women, right? Mm -hmm. as, as being a part of a group that's now in the Medinan period, which is when that verse is from, of a higher social status, right? So they are recognized as being the high status women because they don't have to dress like slave women. But I don't know, I mean, um, I think that therefore there, the, it, that it does leave a really interesting leeway for, for um, discussions about what that means in today's context. And I think that both Sadia Sheikh and Amina Wadud mentioned situations in which they, they would draw their own personal line, right? And I think that for Sadia, it might've been the bikini and, and Amina mentioned something about going into a bath situation. <laughs> she was like, I was just lowering my gaze the whole time, right? You know, there's your nudist colony. <laughs> and so, um, so this is, this is, a, it, it's those sorts of situations in that, in, you know, that everybody will find themselves in different situations in which you either have a chance to kind of check out what's going on or to decide not to check that those things out and i guess that that's that that's one of the the things that 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 comes forth from that yeah um and then so we have mary and a woman's testimony that i'd love to just get to uh, also now i noticed that you don't have the contemporary um the interviews of the contemporary folks on mary the interviews that was because um because essentially our interviews ended up taking so long in, in themselves of those verses that, that it, it was quite, it was hard to, I mean, it was just practical basically. The, I think that our interviewees, we, we told them which verses we were looking at and we said, choose three of them that you wanna talk about because we didn't want to, we didn't want to, um, uh, you know, overburden them basically. And, um, and I, it, and so they didn't end up talking about the Mary verse. In, and that was an interesting choice as well, because they were talking about things that maybe where, where they felt that there was more contemporary relevance. But I think that there is plenty of contemporary relevance in the Mary story. Um, and then as for the testimony, yeah, that again, I think that some of the Iran interviews are there, but not, not the Amina Wadud yeah, not and Sadia Sheikh, because I think that they chose the, those three others simply because it was just, that was just a pragmatic. And also but, uh, I think we, we worked on Mary towards the end of the project. And by that time, you know, we had deadlines and we already had enough work, I think, um, for the transcription of those interviews and so on. So I think we just wanted to have an optimized kind of wrap up. Um, and I think the Mary issue um, is universal enough to kind of speak without 
the need for any modern qualification. I mean, there's not there's a lot to qualify in terms of how women were treated as you know witnesses in the seventh century and how we want we expect they should be now. There's a lot to qualify in terms of how the veil was and how it might be now, and so on and so on for the for the for the beating verse. But I think Mary is so universal that we expect that most voices would probably converge on seeing that as a kind of exemplification of the highest possibility of um, um, for an individual. And it just happens to be encapsulated in the story of a, of a woman. And that's why it's so important. So I think that's really just, it's very powerful in the Quran, the, um, the Mary presence. And, you know, and, and I mean, Everybody knows about Mary, of course, before the Quran, but for it to have, for it to hold a place it does in the Quran, I think we wanted to highlight that. Yeah, um, and then for the woman's testimony, one like we were talking about earlier, uh, Rashid Rida, by his point, that context becomes really important, and then you get to the more, you know, some other folks were like, nope, like Fariba Al Aswan, who says it's a privilege to not have to. It's a good thing, you know, Karen, that you don't have, that you're not obligated to serve as a witness because it's a social res- uh, obligation, uh, responsibility, and so on. Um, I've seen seen some Muslim feminist bloggers arguments that, okay, in a in a context, in a space where, you know, a woman is on the stand and everybody else is, I don't know, is threatening and is scaring her, intimidating her then she needs support. And so I think of that partner of hers as a support, that emotional, moral support is incredibly, I think, necessary in, in cases where there's consequences for speaking, standing up for justice, maybe. But they read this verse and they go, okay, this is the only case in which a woman can serve as a witness. Some of them say, yeah, okay, it's women matter, women's matters. But they had the option to say, okay, if God is allowing a woman to be a witness, even in business finance and stuff that we don't, we wouldn't associate women to be an expert in, then clearly she can be an expert in everything else also. So what you're doing, Shenaz, is you've just become, you've just announced yourself as the new Mufassir of of this age. One of the problems with the tradition is that it stopped at a historical point in time. And there's a disjuncture. I mean, if we at least had the possibility that people were still writing commentaries up until our modern day with the very likelihood that you would have written one, I may have written one, maybe because we came up through the cultural geographies of, of Muslim countries, we would have been in dialogue and maybe you'd have turned my attention to things like the points you just said. You'd have said to me, well, what about this and this? And I would think, oh, actually, she, that makes sense. Yeah, why not? So, I mean, there is no tradition. That's what I'm saying. The tradition stops in a point in, in a historical moment. And, and, and that's, one of the, that's one of the major weaknesses of the dialogue now, because it's talking about something that stopped in the... I know they kept writing tafsir to the 19th century, but it's always, at a certain point in time, is pretty much in the, in the main derivative of things that they'd already established in the medieval period, you know, by the 12th, 13th century. So that's one of the difficulties is that we don't have a living tradition of writing commentary on the Quran that would allow us to even transcend it. So we, now we can't transcend it because we're not on, you know, we don't have some anything underneath us to, to kind of say, okay, we've had enough of the Tafsir tradition, we've done it, we know its limits, we've got to go beyond, we go something. We don't even have that yet. So I think that's the that's the I think the challenge. And so that's why the things that you are saying that are meaningful and possibilities that one could engage with, it's very hard to find where the platform is for that because the scholastic tradition was limited to that historical moment. 
yeah, what was so fascinating to me, I wrote this, this article on women as judges and witnesses. And what was so fascinating to me as well was how the legal schools were coming up with their interpretations in response to each other, not really even in response to what was going on in society. I mean, they would say, like the Hanafis allow women's testimony in all matters and, and judging. They allow women to be judges or test, to testify in all matters other than kadud or kasas. So in all matters other than anything that would affect, uh, like that would incur a bodily punishment. And, um, and the Shafi'is are much, much more restrictive. And what was fascinating to me about that is that they were constructing their arguments in response to each other. They weren't really, it, it, was, it wasn't that they weren't intellectually genuine, it's that their debate was with each other. It wasn't about actually what women's capabilities are or what, or what it, it was that one of their founding fathers would have taken a position and now they're defending it, you know? And, um, and, and so it, that, it, was, it was really illuminating to write on that subject for me because especially to understand how those, inter how those traditions are built as, as a kind of dialogue with those people. And so that's where we get into your point, Firas, which is that, yeah, if we were all professors now, or especially if you two were professors now, right? Um, then you would be in dialogue with each other and you would be informing each other's position, right? But that those were not the voices that we had in that medieval tradition. And they're not even in the rare instances where somebody is writing a tafsir today. Today, It's usually not people who are, who are in any way reformist. It's usually people who are seeking to show their credentials as conservatives, right? They just want to show how familiar, they want to show off how familiar they are, show or show off how familiar they are with the tradition and how much they know the Quran and how they know this and how they know that and how they can reconcile it. In, in, and so what, what we don't have, what Firas is pointing out, I think um, that, that we don't have is that in this form, we don't have that modern living kind of uh, dialogue with with actually variant voices, with voices who are bringing in different opinions. And this is where lived reality becomes so important. Just talk to the women around or think about the impact. Could it affect them in any way? But, well, especially in the modern period, and that's what Sadia Sheikh points out in her Tafsir Praxis article. But the point is, is that also people mediate their lived realities by what they think is right or wrong. I mean, a lot of people look to authorities for their interpretation. And then, as you know, the big question is who counts as an authority? Is it going to be you or is it going to be somebody educated at Al-Azhar? And I mean, for me, it's going to be you, obviously. But, um, but, <laughs> but you know, that's not, that's not necessarily, um, that's not necessarily the, the view of, of, of a lot of the mainstream, right? Because what they want is a sense of the tradition and a sense of some, that, that they know that somebody has, is carrying out that tradition. Um, if there's any, is there anything else that either of you wants to say, or both of you want to say, or anything else that you want to say about anything that we didn't talk about or? So actually we, we you know, uh, we were both exposed to the same kind of, we had the same teachers. Um, now, I'm not saying that everybody with same teachers work together, but I'm just trying to explain part of why I think we do converge intellectually. So we were both taught by the same kinds of teachers and actually the same teacher um, at some point. So 
we kind of had a sensibility that was trained in a particular way. Um, but I think we've since um, discovered that we both want to read texts in a certain way to allow the text to speak their world. And and I do I do think there's a lot to be said for the for this concept of the text becoming transformative. After all, that's why people love literature and love reading, because I think they're they're sucked into that world and then they're thrown back out completely different. And you know, it's a completely different and why should the Quran be any less uh, of such an experience? I think that's uh that's primarily what it's about. I think we come to a text um, with our own formation, our history, our what you call the, your lived reality. We come with that, right? That and that's necessary for giving us our identity of our own personal. What makes us individual and unique in reading a text? Then there's a the text itself and its different horizons, right? Which is the idea that hermeneutical concept that of course is important. But then what happens after is really the key. So like, how do you reemerge transformed by your interaction with the text? Like how does it, how does it reconfigure you? So there's three stages of, of, I think we were both interested in that. We we're both interested in letting that text transform us um, for what it is without, you know, so we, with the anthology, we were saying, okay, thank you very much. We've learned a lot about grammar, theology, fiqh, law, jurisprudence, hadith, uh, guys, but we're going to just leave, you know. We do, I mean, every now and then we do look up a, a verse or two just to see if, you know, we're on the right track linguistically, you know, because, you know, sometimes the language is, is arcane. Uh, but we've kind of thought, okay, goodbye. Thank you very much, Mufassirun. Uh, we will now just going to read the Quran. Uh, I think that that also... Yeah, in addition to share, having shared Patricia Crona as a teacher, I think that there's also, so we had a kind of shared um, love of history, the, the hist uh, finding out more about historical context and just trying to understand what that was. She always thought that you could find the answer. I think she, the people, she was always accused of being a positivist, like you can figure it out. And I don't know that we can exactly figure it out, but I think both of us really liked that idea that maybe you can get closer to figuring it out. Maybe yeah. you don't just have to say, oh, this is patriarchal. Maybe you could just say, what does it mean? What, what's going on here? What, what does it look like? What can we get any of the texture? I think that we both have, a, like you say, a love of reading and a love of literature and, and for being moved by things. Um, but then also, I think that we both have a shared uh, um, method in terms of uh, empathy. I think that even with the tafsir tradition, which I think uh, it will, it's quite clear by now, we vehemently disagreed with a lot of what we were writing um, and, and really found it shocking and incredibly difficult to write some of this, right? And to be transcribing some of these things. And in my case, for so many years, I just never wanted to see another tafsir of 434 again, as long as I wanted to live, right, basically. And, um, and you know, just to have to relive that horror again and again and again by and refine it and actually really transcribe what these authors are saying at, to the best of my ability without even putting my own voice into what they're saying. Um, it's because I think that we both have a kind of desire to, uh, 
to understand what's going on in the minds of those authors. And that now, of course, we apply to the Quran as well, like, right? But even with the tafsir tradition, just understanding that they must have had a moral worldview. It might have been different from ours and it might have looked totally, their, their moral parameters might be different from our moral parameters, but they must have had a moral worldview and what did it look like? And that, that kind of historical curiosity and willingness to hear their voices was, was a part of where we came together because we wanted to make, maintain absolute faithfulness to that, to, to what they were actually saying. And then now that's transformed into like that same approach taken towards the Quran. Well, it must, it must be saying something, it, it, it must have a viewpoint on this. You know, why is this there? what would it have been trying to say in that context? Can we understand that as a basic starting point? What can we know about the context? How do we figure this out? How do we kind of look at it from within? That whole idea that, that you can enter into the world of the text and somehow reach it, somehow really do your best to try to reach it. We'll never be living in that world either of the Quran or of these Mufassirun. But the idea is that they must have had their own moral parameters. And can we try to understand the texture of what that looked like? I think that we are both really motivated by that kind of intellectual empathy, empathizing with the, with the, even with the people with whom we vehemently, vehemently disagree, that, that willingness to let them have their own voice anyway. Thank you both for this, for that, and also for this incredible book. Thanks. Thank you for hosting us and uh, being a gracious host and an engaging one, because uh, kind of giving us things to think about. Because um, you are acting as a as a commentator as well as a theologian as an exegete, so it's nice because you know it makes for a richer conversation. So I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you All right, so that was my conversation with Karen Bauer and Firas Hamza about their book, An Anthology of Quranic Commentaries, Volume 2 on Women, published in 2021 with Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for tuning in. Salam.